0: Spoke Media.
1: Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Hello. Hello, hello.
2: Should I put on my headphones?
1: I'm sitting in the studio with a political organizer named Asher. Asher's in his 30s, bespectacled, scruffy beard with flecks of red, and a quiet, contemplative demeanor. Eight years ago, Asher went to visit his uncle's apartment for the first time in Spring Valley, New York, about an hour north of New York City. Asher's uncle was named Omri, and Asher had never been to visit Omri before. This visit was only happening because a few days earlier, the Spring Valley police had contacted Asher's parents in Maryland. They'd found Omri dead in his red Ford Mustang by the side of the road. So Asher and his family drove up to Spring Valley to sort through all the belongings that Omri had unexpectedly left behind when they arrived they discovered a small basement apartment with every surface countertops chairs the bed the closets crammed full of stuff at a live storytelling show in Brooklyn last year asher described the scene
2: there were there were piles and piles of those sort of like knickknack things that you buy like impulse buys at the end of registers like those those little uh, 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 three-piece like cologne sets and, and yep. perfume sets that you walk by on your way to the cash register at Dwayne Reed, and you're like, no, "Who buys those things?" Omri bought all of these things.
1: <laughs> that wasn't all. The family spent hours sorting through unopened boxes of baseball cards, decades of racing forms, and toy horse figurines. But Asher's in our studio today to talk about something else he found in the apartment: boxes and boxes. Of letters, I'm looking at a, what is that, a two-inch thick binder? It's a two-inch,
2: yeah, two-inch thick binder that's filled to capacity with uh, letters.
1: So these are the letters that you found when you went to clean out the apartment?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so we found these in a series of probably four or five different boxes and shoe boxes and stuff under, I think initially I found them under his bed and found some in the closet and... Yeah, just sort of kept
1: finding them. Asher has these letters preserved in a series of three-ring binders, which he brought into the studio to show us. As we flipped through them, we saw that each of them was neatly handwritten in flowing cursive. The eyes were all dotted with hearts, and many of the letters began with the greeting, Hello, love, with an exclamation point, which was also dotted with a heart. The letters are from a woman named Renee, who Asher's never met, and the letters are confusing for Asher, because they seem to be addressed to a man that Asher doesn't recognize from his limited experiences with Omri, of which, as Asher explained in that storytelling show, there weren't many.
2: We saw him every now and then, but we never knew when he was coming. He would, he would, he would show up, and what I mean show up, I mean like we would wake up in the morning and he would be sleeping in his car in our driveway. And then my dad would say, I guess Omri's here to come visit us, guys. And, and we would even say, like, oh, like, you can let it, like, if you let us know, I mean, A, if you let us know, like, a normal person, like, we can have, like, a visit, but also, like, you don't have to sleep outside. You can come into our house, like, you're a part of our family. It's like, no, no, I don't want to bother anyone, like, I was just driving
1: around. The Omri that Asher knew preferred his car to a bed, and as far as Asher can tell, preferred horse racing to pretty much anything.
2: My parents would make light of, not make fun of him, but make light of, you know, he was always this... Single bachelor. He would drive up and down the coast going to different horse racing events. Yeah. Um, There's a really big one outside of Baltimore. So we always kind of counted on seeing him at least once a year for Pimlico. But there were no, like, we didn't make trips to go see Omri or anything like that.
1: During those bizarre visits when the family would wake up to find Omri asleep in the driveway, Asher doesn't remember Omri saying much. He would talk about being excited for Pimlico or his favorite pastries at the Rockland Bakery, where he liked to stop between fairs during his long night shifts as a cab driver.
2: That's kind of all we really knew about him, that he went to horse races and he drove a cab.
1: So when Omri died and Asher found the letters from Renee, Asher became convinced that there was more to his uncle than baseball cards and drugstore ephemera. That the truth about who Omri was was hiding somewhere in these pages. I think
2: the first one is in 93, 94, and I think they go up to 2006 or 7.
1: I mean, she writes that she loves him in the letters. So who was Renee? And who was the Omri that she seemed to know so much better than anyone in his family ever did? From Spoke Media and WALT, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 14, The Sasquatch of Spring Valley. We'll be right back.
2: Hello.
1: Hello. A few weeks after Asher's visit to the studio, we all drove down to his parents' house in Bethesda, Maryland. We sat around the dining room table, listening to their stories about Asher's Uncle Omri.
3: He would come in four or five in the morning, he would sleep through the day, basically to avoid seeing the people in the house. And then he would be up out all night, whatever he was doing.
1: That's Asher's dad, Sheldon. The first time he met Omri... Sheldon was visiting Asher's mom, Omri's sister, and it was early in their marriage. One night, Sheldon fell asleep on the living room couch. And
3: sometimes during the night, whether it was three or four or five, I just remember this large figure, we still joke about it, kind of coming towards me, you know, walking (laughs) through the living room, and I thought, what is that? Like, you know, it was this Esquatch in Spring Valley, and that was Omri, and I never really met him for a while because he was just this large, dark figure coming through the room.
1: Asher's mom, Leode told us her brother struggled to find connection with people from an early age.
0: I think it was hard for him socially. I think he tried to make friends by bribing them. At one point, he was picked up for shoplifting when he was in high school, and he didn't know how really to interact with
1: people. He bribed people?
0: Yeah. Really? Yeah, he would give them things.
1: Leod remembers family friends calling to report things missing from their houses after Omri would come over to visit. And not just in high school. As early as age six or seven, her parents found themselves apologizing to the neighbors for Omri's thievery. Liod suspected that the stolen goods made their way to the playground at Omri's school, where he used them to make friends.
0: I think that all of these were attention-seeking devices because he didn't know how to quote-unquote normally, you know, interact with with people. Yeah, so he would, you know, think, you know, it's okay to take, you know, something from you and give it to Asher because, you know, that way Asher will be my friend and I don't care what you think of me.
1: (laughs) At home, Omri found other forms of companionship.
0: He loved cats. Growing up, we had some strays that he took in that he brought home, and my father never loved cats, so they did butt heads mm-hmm. on that, you know. My father grew up in Jerusalem, and there were only stray cats in those days, and he said the only thing a cat is good for is for throwing stones at. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> Leode described her father and Omri as being from totally different universes.
0: My father came to this country with, you know, a wife and a young daughter and $100 in his pocket and built himself up and, you know, made his own business and became, you know, not wealthy, but certainly, you know, successful and respected in his field. And he would have always wanted my brother to take over, you know, the business. He was in excavation and construction and he... You know, tried to show him the ropes and tried to teach him how to drive a a machine, as he called a tractor or a bulldozer. And Omri was always looking for shortcuts.
1: Omri was much closer to his mother. She was the only person in the family he felt like he could talk to. But when she died of breast cancer when Omri was only 13, he was left alone with his father.
0: My father couldn't even boil water, you know, I mean, never mind, you know, know what to go shopping. And and he was overtaken by his own grief and, you know, just couldn't handle um, a child who was so needy, you know, emotionally, academically, in, in all those respects.
1: By the time he got to high school, Omri was getting picked up for marijuana possession and flunking his classes. And the last straw for Omri and his father was the arrival of Pearl, a divorcee up the street, who started coming over to the house shortly after Omri's mother died. Leod says Omri was particularly incensed when their father informed Omri that Pearl was going to live with them. Omri issued an ultimatum. If Pearl was moving in, Omri was moving out.
0: There was no way they were going to live under the same roof together. And ultimately, my father supported his relationship with her rather than
1: his relationship with his son. This was the moment when Omri took to the car, lurking the back roads and racetracks of upstate New York, alternating between his Mustang and his taxi, appearing sporadically in driveways and bakeries. Leode was away at college by this point, and over time, the family drifted apart. And so began this period Asher remembers— of fleeting visits from his mysterious uncle. Everything about Omri's life seemed to be a funny story.
0: Then there was this other woman that he brought here once with the nails. Yeah. Remember, oh, you were at a baseball I, game.
2: So my memory of that is that she was a stripper. And it could that, have been. And that was how you explained her to me.
3: We never knew if they were girlfriends or companions or clients, or whatever. We, we never knew. There was always that vague vagueness that, were, yeah. that, that surrounded him. I mean, we never really asked.
1: Like Asher, they learned a lot of what they knew about Omri after he died, when they went to clean out the apartment. It was the first time they'd been there, too. They had to get the address from the police, who discovered Omri's body in the Mustang.
0: I remember all the humorous things we found, like the little negligee things. <laughs> um... You know, again, but but as we were talking about before, as a child, you know, taking things and giving it to you and, and, you know, hoping that you'll be his friend, um, I think that's what most of the things that we found, you know, whether it be the little jewelry pieces or all those books or DVDs or the clothing, you know, uh, of any sorts, you know, he was just very generous when he could be, and, and he didn't have two dimes to grew up together. I I mean, he was always living from paycheck to paycheck. So, yeah, we found his bank statement had $35 in it.
1: As near as they could tell, Omri gave away everything he earned from his taxi driving. In his mind, Omri had been kicked out of his own family. And it was almost like he was doing his best to make a new one out of whatever and whoever he came across.
0: For someone who I didn't think really had any friends or close relationships, that so many people we found did speak so highly of him. You know, oh, he used to come in here all the time and buy coffee from us. And, oh, I remember him, you know, we used to go to the races together. And, you know, there, there are people who he, I think he really impacted positively
1: at Omri's hastily arranged funeral in Spring Valley. Leode, Sheldon and Asher, met a few of those people.
0: I want to use the word misfit, but not in a derogatory way, but also people who are a little off, you know.
1: About 10 people showed up on the cold, drizzly afternoon that Omri was laid to rest. A couple lounge lizards from the off-track betting parlor, the girls who worked the counter at the bagel shop, a dispatcher from the taxi company, They wanted to give Omri a proper send-off. One of them brought a coffee table book about the New York Mets as a parting gift.
3: And he he placed that on top of the coffin. And as they were lowering, Leon's sister came over and she said, That's a library book!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Back at Omri's apartment, tucked in amongst the odds and ends, the family found a few bits of evidence that Omri kept them somewhere in his thoughts.
3: We found on his shelves, and uh, there was some, a bunch of pictures of people. And among the pictures was like, you know, the holiday cards that people send with children, and it says whatever it says. And it was a picture of my nephews, Leah's sisters, two boys, who were then maybe six and eight, or, you know, small kids at the time. And they were on the beach, and it was a very sweet picture of the two of them, it was like, happy holidays. And her sister was there, and she's, you know, we were looking, and she said, Oh, look, it's the boys. Oh, it's such a sweet picture. <laughs> and the, it wasn't framed, but it had to lean up against something. So we turned it over, and it was taped to a box of porn. And it was Backdoor Sluts 11. <laughs> I will never forget the name of this.
1: Of all the stories from those surreal few days in Spring Valley... Asher thinks this one might be the key to understanding Omri.
2: It's kind of like a beautiful summation of Omri. Yeah, yeah, right. That like That's he the two wanted two sides to, of
0: him. Yeah. yeah, like he
2: wanted to keep the picture of his nephews, mm-hmm. but like couldn't be bothered to buy a picture frame. Right. <laughs> but he was like, oh, I'll just leave it here next to something that I, you
3: know, also, also I, will I, care right? about. Like, it just,
1: and do I did I hear you correctly that it was taped to it? Yes. Yeah. So
3: the picture, you know, he put so it, it on. So. Stood it, up. Like, be able to have it
1: displayed. In the end, Omri seemed to frustrate his family. They couldn't figure out why he was the way he was.
0: My aunt used to say that the only thing that Omri really needed was a good woman to love him. And that, you know, she recognized that, you know, he was a person who really just wanted to be accepted.
1: Which brings us back to those binders full of letters that Asher brought to the studio that day. The letters from Renee.
2: I feel kind of weird having them, honestly. You know, she, she had a deeper relationship with Omri than, than I certainly did, than I don't know whoever else did. And to honor that, you know, she, she should have them.
1: So that's our plan. To help Asher understand his uncle by bringing the letters back to Renee, so that maybe she can tell him who Omri really was. To tell him the rest of this years-long love story that Omri never shared with his family, the story that would have completely changed their perception of him as a lost, lonely soul, lurking in bakeries and watching porn in a basement apartment full of racing forms. But there's one pretty big wrinkle in this plan, something Asher noticed when he started reading through the letters.
2: The very first letter I remember is her going through AA in, um, in prison.
1: All of Renee's letters to Omri were written from prison, where she's currently serving a life sentence. After the break, we try to see Omri through Renee's eyes. We're back in the studio with Asher, trying to figure out if we'll actually be able to meet Renee, the only person who seems to have truly known Omri. The problem is that Renee is currently in jail. In terms of Renee's crime, we're not going to say much about it here. The details are very complicated and don't really have anything to do with this story. All you need to know is that she's serving time for a crime she pled guilty to, and it's a life sentence we decided to write Renee a letter of our own, asking if she'd put us on her visitors list at the prison. And in the meantime, Asher, myself, and producer Jennifer Lai tried to get a better understanding of Omri and Renee's relationship. We spent a few days poring over the letters to Omri, which start in 1995 and run all the way through 2007. The first letters are from the winter of 1995, starting with that letter Asher mentioned before the break, the one about going to AA meetings at the prison. Renee wants Omri to know how much he means to her. She thanks him for taking care of her babies, by which she means her cats, Princess, and Romeo, and suggests that she and Omri should make a real baby one day. She tells Omri that the Celine Dion song, Think Twice, makes her think of him, and encourages him to check out Ozzy Osbourne and Melissa Etheridge, in hopes that he'll listen to their music and understand her feelings. By early 1996, Renee is regularly telling Omri how badly she needs and wants him. She writes that while she spent much of her youth pretending to be tough, Omri saw through her facade. He recognized her as, in her words, a scared little girl who's now being forced to grow up the hard way. At this point, Omri appears to also be dating another woman, named Trendy, and Renee is happy for him. She says she's not threatened by the presence of Trendy in Omri's life, as long as Rene is still his number one. Later, she writes to Omri about her dreams for their future life together in Florida. If she's ever released from prison, she'll be a part-time waitress and part-time exotic dancer, while Omri finds work training horses. She tells him to research the best public school districts in Florida, so they can send their child there if they decide to have one. Omri confides in Rene that he's self-conscious about his weight, and she tells him she loves him exactly as he is, But if he wants to lose weight, she recommends a diet with lots of ginger and egg whites, and sends him step-by-step meal prep instructions so he can get started right away. Throughout the letters, Renee chastises Omri for disappearing for vast stretches of time. She won't hear from him for weeks, and she pours out her heart, begging Omri to remember that she has nothing to look forward to without his letters and visits. About two weeks after we sent our letter to Renee, she wrote back in that same impeccable script she used to profess her undying love for Omri. Dear Mr. Dingman and Ms. Lai, she wrote, not a day passes without me missing one of my best friends. Omri loved his sisters and family, and I wish he'd been able to gain a close relationship with his nephew. Asher truly was cheated out of knowing a great guy. Renee gave us her lawyer's contact information and said that as long as the lawyer didn't object, she'd meet with us. We called the lawyer right away, who told us she didn't have a problem with our visit. And a few days later, we were in the car with Asher, on our way to the prison. We are rolling. As we drove, we were going through some last odds and ends from the binders. Little bits of folded paper that Asher had hastily tucked into the sleeves, but never really looked at. There were a few things we couldn't make heads or tails of a hotel room key envelope with the words binoculars and lexington scribbled on it another cryptic note about someone named craig and a missing vcr
2: it's <laughs> just always there's just always more there's there's just a lot of surprises with him
1: and then this did you know that omri had been married no <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, no
1: <laughs> so at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the binder that I was going through, yeah. there were just all these like folded up papers. And so I was like, oh, let's just see what these are. And most of them were just empty envelopes that the letters had been in. Mm-hmm. And then there was this like triple folded thing that was like stapled together. Uh, and at first I thought it was a parking ticket. And I thought, <laughs> well, that makes sense. He drove around a lot. Right. A cab driver. Yeah. And then I unfolded it, and it is the record of a divorce proceeding. (laughs) Um. The divorce record indicated Omri had been married for a little over three years in the late 90s, not to Renee, but to another woman with an Eastern European-sounding name. Asher didn't recognize the name, and when he called his mom, she said she didn't know anything about it. Evidently, Renee wasn't Omri's only secret romance as with everything in Omri's life, nothing was quite what it seemed, including, as we were about to discover, his relationship with Rene. We'll be right back. We arrived at the prison in the early afternoon of a rainy Wednesday. We pulled through the thick steel gates and up the long winding drive towards a collection of squat cement buildings with peeling tan paint, surrounded by tall, shiny razor wire. I counted 37 rat traps lining the base of the wall outside the main building as we entered. Two guards escorted us into a dark, empty cafeteria, where we set up our microphones in a corner and waited. It took a while for Renee to arrive. She's older now and walks with a cane. She approached us cautiously, shuffling down a long corridor in a dark green prison uniform. She had straight brown hair that hung well past her shoulders and she met us with a weary gaze and shook our hands. She held Asher's hand for a long time. She stared at him and told him he reminded her of Omri.
2: I just want to know more about who he was as a friend and, and as, as someone who you fell in love with.
4: Okay. You know, to say the term fell in love with, I think that Armory and I were both, well, we were both very messed up. And I knew how in love he
1: was with me. And then Renee said something that changed everything we thought we knew.
4: Over time, you know, in prison, and I saw what he was doing to himself to make him happy and to maybe turn him around. I might have tweaked it a little bit. Okay, I did tweak it a little bit. Um, to say that I, I was in love with him, and I, I was not in love with Armory. He was one of the most wonderful men I have ever known. Truly. Um, why I wasn't in love with him, I don't know. I really should have been if I had been smart. But I wasn't so smart.
1: For the next several hours... Renee told us the true story of her and Omri.
4: He was dispatcher for a taxi company, and I was cutting out of high school. And I needed a taxi to sneak me out of school. Yes, I did. And um, I had been up really late all night. So I had called, and it was early, early in the morning, all right, and Omri um, was still on. And so we just started, he used to be the voice in the radio, you know, because he was on that radio, you know, talking on the dispatch. And I'd be on the telephone with him. And he would talk
1: to me while I waited for the car to show up. Renee told us she started calling the taxi service regularly just to talk to Omri after a long night. And at first, they didn't even know who the other one was. They were just friendly voices talking down the line. But then. After a while of keeping her company on the phone while she waited for her cab, they did meet in person. Omri started coming to pick Renee up in his own taxi. He'd take her out for breakfast, and they would sit and talk. And then Renee stopped calling. She started seeing a guy named Tom and moved in with him. But after a year, she told us, that relationship became abusive. Renee felt trapped. She didn't know what to do. And then... I ran into Armory in the mall,
4: and I started crying. And I told him what I was going through, and he said, well, come and move in with me. And um, at this point, I was 18. He had known me for a few years, but I hadn't seen him for a year, And because I was with this abusive boyfriend. God forbid I contacted anybody with this abusive boyfriend. So I planned it that when he wasn't home, Tom wasn't home, that I was going to go to Omri's. And I packed up my stuff, and off to Omri's I went. And I started um, dancing
1: at a place right by Omri. For Renee, moving in with Omri was a step up.
2: Um, so what was, what was he like to, to live with?
4: <laughs> he was awesome he would always make you laugh he would always make you smile and he would always make you feel good about yourself mm. he would pump up music too I don't know if you know the song um, Put the Lime in the Coconut
2: yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> and we would dance around the environment you know and he would bring home cheesecake after work he'd bring me home a slice of cheesecake he would cook anytime, make some wings, or always want to feed you and always want to take care.
1: But Renee says Omri's giving nature was also his downfall.
4: Once he learned how to, um, how to steal, and I might have had something to do with that, but when he learned how to do that... <laughs> It was over. He started stealing this and stealing that. And he loved to steal um, things to give people gifts. He didn't steal for other, you know, for himself. He stole for others, um, perfumes and stuff.
2: I, I don't want to take away your credit for teaching him to steal, but oh, that's no, actually like, something my mom said when he was a kid,
4: he, probably he would it.
2: steal He would steal from other kids to give to other kids, to make friends.
4: Do you
1: see? Yeah. That, in in a nutshell, is really who he was. Eventually, Omri's gifts got him in trouble. He started meeting more of the dancers at the club where Renee worked. They'd tell him about their money problems, and Omri would offer to let them stay at the apartment. He would bring in um,
4: these strippers. Now, I don't know if, if he was seeking a real friend. Like he found in me, I really was his friend. To this day, I'll always be his best friend. But they weren't his friends. They were just using him. And he would bring them in, and they would be taking his whole paychecks. And he wasn't able to pay his rent, and he wasn't able to buy his
1: heart medication. Omri's money problems started to spiral out of control. His landlord was also his boss at the taxi company, and he started garnishing Omri's paychecks to cover the rent. So, Omri hatched a plan to pay off his debt. He
4: married somebody for money. Okay. Yes, he did. So I never understood that, but yeah, he got paid, he got paid Mm -hmm. some thousands of dollars and some kind of workout deal with this woman. And it, it helped her to stay in the country And she was a hard-working woman.
1: But the marriage scheme wasn't enough. Omri was racking up more debt, gambling on horses, and had also started using drugs. And the situation at the apartment was deteriorating rapidly. And there was one time I I went out shopping. I come back,
4: and there is this girl and this guy in the kitchen. Okay, who are you? I'm Trina, okay? (laughs) What are you doing here? (laughs) Omri said I could stay here. No, you can't. Get out. Now remember, I had a serious attitude back then. Get out. And take your little thing with you.
1: But the guy wasn't actually all that little. And when Renee tried to kick him and Trina out, he got aggressive, hitting Renee and knocking her to the ground. A few seconds later, Omri came home, walking into the kitchen in the midst of the attack. I started screaming at Armory, and I said,
4: Do you see? Do you see what you have done again? I said, This is her boyfriend's. You think you're going to get with her? And he says, That's what she said. I said, Do you see what they did to me?
1: Renee told us she was in the depths of her addiction around the time of this incident. And though she only weighed about 100 pounds, she was so filled with rage that her screaming suddenly caused Trina and the boyfriend to panic.
4: And I scared this guy. <laughs> they run out the door and they leave. Now I turned all this anger on Army. Are you crazy? You could have had us killed. You can't just keep doing that.
1: But Omri did keep doing it. Eventually, Renee found her own place and moved out.
4: Through the years, I would call and I would say, what's going on? And he'd be highly upset about a girl. Get her out. I mean, what are you doing? Get her out. This was basically over and over again.
1: Every time, Renee would threaten Omri. She'd refuse to speak to him until he did something about his latest toxic roommate arrangement. And every time, Omri would come to her with his head bowed in shame.
4: Don't be mad at me. Is she gone? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I put her on a plane. You paid for a plane ticket. My God. Yes, and this, this was his story. But through all this, I want you to remember, though, Army was smoking a lot of drugs. I mean, we're talking not just marijuana. We're talking freebase and sniffing cocaine. And yet, throughout all that, he was there whenever I needed him. And I didn't like to need him. You know, but whether I asked, whether I didn't ask,
1: he was always there. Omri was out of control, and Renee's always had a hunch about what was underneath it all. I think that um,
4: because of his like his, his need for his mom, and that that female connection, that female bonds. I think that he was seeking it with women, but he was getting it with a lot of rejections and a lot of hurt, because his mom was so good. Like your real your real grandmother? Yeah. She she was so good. I mean the stories that I that I've been told by Omri, of the beautiful things. Of of like when he was little, you know, and he was talking about her and he would cry.
2: Is there is there one that stands out? I mean it's also I I ask. I ask my mom a lot, but I obviously never got to know my real grandma and. We also, anytime I would go visit my grandfather and Pearl, there were only a couple times when Pearl wasn't there that I could talk to him about her.
4: When Armory was little, you know, and um, he's crying and he's wiping his face like this, and his mom comes over and he, she she put his, her hands on his head, squats him down to him and says, what is it? What has you so upset? And he goes to tell her, and he starts crying. And she says, don't you know it doesn't matter? It's going to be okay." Come here, come here, come here. And gives him a hug and just held him. And he said she was so soft that he had not felt fully safe. and that's been his problem
1: he has not been safe renee knew so much about omri's family but she could tell they weren't interested in making her a part of it she told us omri took her to visit his father and stepmother once and they wouldn't let renee into the house
4: i wasn't exactly welcome Remember, I was, like, I was, I was the symbolization of all of
1: his problems. Renee's parents didn't have much use for Omri, either. They were convinced he was the one who'd gotten René hooked on drugs. My parents still
4: to this day, oh no, it was Omri. And I, I'll tell them, I, over and over, it's not him, it wasn't him, it was
1: me. So, each blamed by their families for the other's downfall, Omri and Renee just had each other and their own very particular kind of friendship. Mm
2: -hmm. So did did your relationship ever get romantic, if that's okay to ask?
4: Romantic, no. Okay. Sexual, yes. When somebody wants you so bad, And they've done so much for you. It's not even like, oh, I owe them. You know, let me lay down for them. You wanna make them happy. And you know that will make their whole world. And here it is Valentine's Day. And you offer that one gift, that one time. Yeah, does it make you feel super important? Of course. Big ego? Yeah, definitely I did have one then. Now, not so much. Did I maybe need that? Probably. I don't think that my self-worth was very high then. You know, um, as far as what else I had to contribute to the world, I felt that's what I was worth. But I knew I had that to give. And here's this man, who happens to be my best friend too. How do you deny someone so thirsty for something? And so it's Valentine's Day and I gave him a gift. And I know, honestly, I think that out of anybody that I have ever been with, he cherished that gift more than anybody else would. And I certainly do not regret it. At all.
1: In prison, Renee got clean, but she knew Omri was in a precarious position without her in his life.
4: He came here one time And he cried, he cried, his shoulders racked. He was broken. What do you do with that kind of realness? I was that backbone. I was that one to say, hey, come on, come on, come on. What are you doing? What are you doing here? Cut this crap out. You're stronger than this. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, what do you want me to say? That's why I need you. Oh, no. Oh, no. You need to get your feet under you. He was stuck because no matter what he
1: did, he couldn't make those ends meet. It was too late for Omri. He was too far gone financially, emotionally, and physically. He died of a heart attack, alone in the Mustang. Asher had always suspected that there was more to Omri than the caricatured stories his parents told, more than the pastries, porn, and perfume sets.
2: That's just sort of how he was viewed, but I don't think that's fair to him, I don't think that was true. Um, I think he was never really given a chance or an opportunity for whatever
1: reason. In the eight years since Omri's death, Asher told us he's moved apartments seven times. He doesn't take much with him when he goes, but he's always kept the binders of letters, convinced the truth was somewhere inside them. It turns out that truth is pretty different than what he imagined, and that it wasn't hiding in the letters themselves. But rather with the person who wrote them.
4: You had a really, really good man for an uncle. You can do worse than to follow in his footsteps without doing all the other stuff.
1: But he would be so proud of you. Renee confessed that she was anxious about talking to us for our story. The memories of Omri are stormy and painful to relive.
4: I'm still, you know, I still have a hard time. I still talk to him. As shortly ago as right before I came to see you. (laughs) And I said, Omri, I know you would do this for me.
1: Omri may be gone, but Renee still feels their connection. A connection they made without Omri giving her something he stole. Instead, they gave each other something no one else in their lives ever could. Somebody totally accepts you for who you are, unconditionally,
4: and it never changes. I accepted him completely, even for the screw-up that he was, but he accepted me as screw up that I tend to be sometimes, too. And... I was definitely a screw-up back then. But love doesn't just die. You know? And we loved
1: each other. We went to visit Renee, expecting her to tell us a love story. And she did. Just not the kind we're used to hearing. It was a story that didn't make sense to anyone else in Renee and Omri's lives. But for them, it didn't have to.
4: I used to ride in his taxi. For as many hours as he was working, I was in that taxi. And we would just talk. Or just be. Just be.
1: Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lye, Jacob Smith, Lindsay Cradwell, Jenna Hannum, and Janiel Kastner. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett and featured original music by Evan Viola. Our theme music is by Louis Guerra. Executive producers for season two are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tevakolian at Spoke Media. Find more great podcasts at spokemedia.io. Special thanks this week to Mia Lobel and to Steve Fishman. To see photographs of the letters and documents that Asher found in Omri's apartment, and much, much more, please visit our website, familyghostspodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our email list, The Ghost Post. If you'd like to follow our show on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at famgoshow, that's F-A-M-G-H-O, show. Stay tuned after the credits for a sneak preview of next week's story. And thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Next time on Family Ghosts, Kirya grows up looking out the windows of her childhood home dreaming of a different life. I'm just sitting there staring out at these trees, and they don't do anything. They don't change. has always wondered if the keys to that different version of herself might have something to do with the stories of her grandfathers, about whom she grew up knowing only tall tales. One of them was Benjamin, who lived on the streets of Berkeley, California.
3: Sometimes he could fix his gaze upon just one person. And it would be so strong that the person would wish become immobilized.
1: That sounds almost mystical. Yeah, that effect on a lot of people. The other was Gus, an international businessman with grand tales of globetrotting adventure.
2: And he would tell me things like, oh yeah, when I was in Australia, the flies were so thick that he couldn't open his mouth or a swarm would come inside and
1: try to make nests there. Raised with little more than apocryphal stories about both of these mythic figures, Kiria wants to know why nobody's ever told her the truth about who they were, and what their real stories can teach her about herself. Join us next week when Season 2 of Family Ghosts continues. You're listening to WALT. Homemade Radio.